Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today we're going to talk about reproductive rights. Um, this has always been an issue. And uh, I'll kind of get into the politics and history of it. Um in the second half of the broadcast. But I wanted to uh, bring to the audience a young lady who uh, is an advocate for women's rights, especially women's reproductive rights. And her name is Kelsey Walker. So let me tell you a little bit about her and then we'll get into the interview Um, because as you know, reproductive rights, the the biggest issue in that is uh, Roe v. Wade and uh, the right for a woman to have an abortion and primarily to do it with, with privacy and not be publicly shamed for it. And um, it is very likely that the current Supreme Court, even with uh, the newest Associate Justice uh, Jackson, will probably overturn that decision. Excuse me. So um, it's a very, it was very relevant And it's a very relevant issue in the black community. So uh, without any further ado, let me introduce Ms. Walker. Uh, Kelsey Walker started out her life in Kansas City before moving to Chicago with her family. Uh, There she formed her passion for women's rights and nonprofit missions. She has since worked for nonprofits for the last 11 years, making her start doing search and rescue and New Mexico and climbing her way to become a chief development officer. Kelsey is married to her husband, Christopher, who rescued her literally and figuratively. They have two living children, Caden and Ember, and their baby in the clouds, Hope. They lost Hope in 2017, and after several years of healing and seeking and seeing the injustice surging in Texas, Kansas, and Mississippi, they are finally ready to share her story. Uh, her book, Face Everything and Rise, is a memoir on abortion, child loss, PTSD, and finding the strength to rise and become a woman's rights activist, advocate. Uh, in December of last year, Kelsey founded the nonprofit From the Green Desk. The mission of the nonprofit is to comfort and validate women who are suffering as a result of abortion, child, infant, or pregnancy loss. Through peer-to-peer services, they eliminate the silent scream stigma associated with these losses. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to present to the podcast, Kelsey Walker. All right. Well, hello, Ms. Walker. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Doing fine. Um, glad that you could be here. Uh, this is a topic that uh, has come up quite a bit recently. Um, it's been a topic for a long, long time. But uh, with the current makeup of the Supreme Court and uh, the case, which is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization um, that uh, the court is getting ready to rule on at some point during this term. Um, We thought being able to have you on the show would be uh, uh, good to kind of talk about it and then some other issues. Um, So let me start with you telling a little bit about how you got to this point to be uh, an advocate for women's rights. Absolutely. So 
2017, at 17 weeks pregnant, we found out, my husband and I, that the child that I was carrying, our daughter Hope, had osteogenesis imperfecta type 2, which is the lethal version of brittle bone disease. So all of the bones in her body were broken, her ribs were breaking in on her heart and her lungs, and she was suffering and her condition threatened my life. So we made a difficult decision to have an abortion at 18 weeks. Um, and it was incredibly hard on all of us, um, my husband and I, um, and then, you know, the, the loss of a child uh, with my younger son that I had at the time was, was incredibly brutal. And in addition to that, the laws that surrounded the clinics also made the procedure itself traumatizing. And so from that personal tragedy, you decided to make a triumph out of that. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, this past year in 2021, with the insurgence of injustice in, you know, in Mississippi and Texas, and then what they're trying to do in Kansas, I just couldn't hold my story in anymore. I had to tell it. So I wrote the book, Face Everything and Rise. And it is a memoir about my story with abortion and finding the strength to rise, even when faced with this unparalleled grief and trauma. And then after founding or writing the book, I founded a nonprofit from the Green Desk, which handles coaching as well as group therapy surrounding abortion, child loss and pregnancy loss. Okay. So let's get into what got you fired up to be an av advocate. So we've got at least, it was at least 22 states uh, after uh, the newest Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Barrett uh, was, was confirmed that decided that they wanted to challenge uh, Roe v. Wade. They wanted to get something in court uh, to uh, to basically make it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and 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 basically overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, you mentioned Texas. Talk about the, the, the Texas bill real quick. So the Texas bill is infuriating to me because at they call it the heartbeat bill because at six weeks you can determine, you know, or detect um, fetal heart rate. The thing about it is, though, is that it makes abortion illegal for everyone. So even if you have a medical condition that you find out later on, or if you find out later on, um, you are prohibited from having an abortion. And what's more is if you do go out of the state and have an abortion, a bounty can be placed on your head for up to $10,000. And most people don't know that they're pregnant at six weeks. So that makes it incredibly difficult. In addition, you know, there was a woman by the name of Anna who found out or had her water break at 17 weeks and she needed the procedure that I had. Her baby was malformed. And because she was in the state of Texas, she was not available to have that procedure, even though her that's what her doctor recommended. So she had to wait and hope that her body recognized the pregnancy was ending and miscarry. And she had to hope that she didn't get a massive infection that could kill her. Right. And so it, it, for those of you that, remember the uh, there was a big deal in Georgia and other states about this heartbeat. So the federal standard now is it used to be the first trimester, right? Now it is 20 somewhere around 24 or 27 weeks in which mm -hmm. a, a woman has to wait in order to uh, uh, select to have an abortion. Is that correct? Um, the so 
it's now like a limit of 20 to 24 weeks okay. um, before you can have, or like as the cutoff to have an abortion as opposed to a waiting period. Right. Okay. So after, so basically after those 24 weeks, you have to carry the baby to term. Correct. Okay. So, um, that's, that's basically what this Supreme court case is going to determine whether, uh, any, any law that makes the time less like a heartbeat bill, then whether that's determining whether those laws are constitutional or not. Yes. Okay. All right. So that's, that's our legal class for today. Now, the, the other thing, <laughs> but there are, just so you understand uh, for the audience, there are other bills. Now, are you familiar with what Connecticut just passed uh, this this past week? Uh, no, it was a little bit of a crazy week working a couple of jobs. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, I definitely understand. I got to clock in a little bit myself. Um but what Connecticut did was they actually did the reverse and they're one of uh, a number of states uh, that took the opposite action and decided to increase accessibility. As a matter of fact, uh, nurse practitioners can perform uh, abortions under this new law that they've passed and waiting on the governor to sign it, but they just passed it. Um, the reason why I want to bring that out to show that not only to show that there are states doing opposite of what uh, you're catching on the news about trying to restrict abortions, but there was an interesting coalition of people that were against it. And that kind of gets into where I want to go. The remainder of the, of the podcast is dealing with uh, members of the Black Caucus. There were several members of the Black Caucus that were against it. Um and so they were, uh, they were citing, uh, you know, historical trends about uh, black babies uh, being, you know, being exterminated or black people were being sterilized back in the day. And they weren't necessarily in favor of it. So even though the law in Connecticut has been open access, they had, they had some opposition to expanding access. Uh, have you encountered in your, in your work, have you encountered, uh, resistance in the black community dealing with this issue of abortion? In my experience, I have not actually, I just went to a bereaved mother's day brunch yesterday and sat at a table with other abortion um, or mothers of choice um, mamas. And I was the only Middle Eastern um, multiracial woman, woman there amongst Black women. And, you know, they recognize it as a need for healthcare, as a need for um you know, preventing them from getting further into this cyclic uh, poverty uh, piece. You know, they couldn't afford to have another baby. They couldn't, you know, they were in a place in their life with an abusive relationship and couldn't, you know, having a baby would have been a nightmare to introduce into that relationship. These women were you know, incredibly strong to share their stories with, with me. And, you know, it just, you know, for, at least from what I'm seeing, it's on the side of the, the stories that the mothers are telling me, as opposed to um, maybe, you know, in, and these are, you know, church going folks. These are people who believe in, um, in God and people who, you know, you, people that you just know are good people on, on the inside. So, you know, it's just, that's been my experience. It hasn't been a negative one. Um, but, um, again, these are from circles that of 
of mamas that have been through it. Right. As opposed, there's a lot of people out there that are wanting to make policies and want to wanting to wrap laws around clinics and things like that that have never experienced it before. And I think that the more um, mamas of choice that can speak out, the the more you're going to see a better reflection of what people actually think. And and that was the comment. It was a a, a member of the Black Caucus in Connecticut, a male legislator, who basically said that he was against abortion, but uh, he's a man, so he can never yeah. go through that. And so he voted to expand the uh, uh, the accessibility. Um, just so you, uh, abortions have dropped. In, in this country over the last 15 years. We've seen a steady decline. And, you know, from my experience, usually if if there's a decline in something that has been a concern, you usually don't see a whole flurry of legislation to try to address a problem that's on the decrease. Why do you think, in your opinion, one, that the rate is decreasing, and two, uh, what do you think is the real outside of what we kind of talked about at the onset? What do you think is the motivation to keep harping on this issue, even though we're seeing a decline? I think there's a decline because there's becoming more accessibility to preventative care um, as you know, with birth control and contraceptive contraception and things like that um with the more advancements of those type of things you you don't have the issue of an uh unplanned pregnancy or a pregnancy that you're not you know prepared for so there's um there's that piece of it um which you know people don't like to talk about um that with Planned Parenthood, they like to talk about the abortions while Planned Parenthood provides birth control to people um, at, to help prevent needing a procedure later on. Um, so far as this flurry of legislature goes, it's, you know, at the time they were looking, or, you know, currently they're, they're looking at a Supreme Court that is definitely leaning the conservative way and they're making an opportunity out of it. There's also been a flurry in the last couple of months because ever since, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, since the war with Ukraine and Russia started, it's like you're watching one thing and all of a sudden there's this outbreak of legislature going on and right in uh, being passed while we're watching this big war going on, which, I mean, don't get me wrong, we definitely should be keeping our eyes on it. But in the meantime, reproductive rights are being stripped. And, um, you know, this summer is going to be critical for many states so far as voting goes, including Missouri, Kansas, you know, several others. And it's, it's really frustrating and heartbreaking at the same time. Right. And, um, you know, in, in political terms, they say that's the tail wagging the dog, right? That you, you're focused yep. in on one thing and other things are slipping through. Um, so it's, it's important to be cognizant of what's going on in, in a whole lot of different areas. Um, I'm going to give you a statistic and and get your assessment of it. Uh, black women have the highest rate of uh, abortions. They it's twenty seven out of one thousand, whereas with white women it's ten out of a thousand. Why do you think that that number is higher in the black community? It's a good question. Um, you know, you can think of it going back to my, my, my brunch that I did yesterday where I was one out of four women that were sitting at that table. And, you know, you, you see 
the, the cycles that, you know, of, of poverty, as well as these generational struggles that Black people are going through in our country all the time. And I think that part of it is that. I think that part of it is, you know, I mean, honestly, it's it's hard to speak on that as not being, you know, part of that group. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, um, I think that it's really unfortunate that that has to, that, that statistic exists that way um, because yeah, it's just, it's really hard to speak on. <laughs> yeah. And I was asking you based on observations and all that, cause yeah, you know, yeah. there's, there's, it's, it's, there's a lot of factors that kick in and um, you know, and I know just like, and you have an individual story, everybody has an individual story. Uh, part of our uh, dilemma, I guess, for lack of a better term in, in public policy is that you can't have millions of stories. You've got to kind of quantitative into some kind of statistical um, realm so you can figure out what's the best course to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, go ahead. Well, at the same time, though, um, part of what makes it so easy for um, institutions and lawmakers to wrap these laws around clinics and to try to, um, you know, to try to eliminate abortion is the fact that they're not listening to the individual stories. They're not hearing from myself or these other women who were physically abused by their spouse and they did not want to bring a child into the world where that child would be abused as well um or you know didn't want to bring a child into the world where they couldn't financially support it and you know didn't want to bring a child into the world that was really sick you know it just there's amplitudinal reasons and individual reasons why um, we see this as our only option as abortion. And it's so much more than a choice. It really compromises everything that you are to have to make this decision. And, you know, it just, if people listen to the individual voices and saw the individual, you know, individual stories, it'd be harder to make those decisions, I think, at the lawmaker level. So, and, and you bring up a good point about that, because, you know, again, you have to, you have to make decisions that, I, I've always had a philosophy that you, you make decisions based off the preamble of the Constitution, right? That either... Mm -hmm. Uh, we have an obligation to protect individual liberty, but at the same time to promote the general welfare. And and you have to balance that out. If, if you're doing it objectively, I, most of the time you get good public policy. But if you're playing games with it, then you end up like in this particular situation. Uh, that's just my opinion. But, um, yeah. you know, um, so let's get into what is the bigger picture as we try to close out what you know everything centers around abortion when it comes to women reproductive rights but it's really really bigger than that kind of explain to the listeners what is a total picture of women's woman a woman's reproductive right yeah a woman's reproductive right can be framed as a, a regulation of what we do with our bodies and not only literally, but also figuratively, you know, people telling us what, you know, what they think is good for us as opposed to us speaking out around what we need 
as citizens, as individuals, as human beings and our humanity. And we've got, you know, multitudinal people that are telling us what they want us to do with our bodies. You can see that from not only lawmakers wrapping these laws around things, but also, you know, just regular messaging or from religion. And the bigger picture is that we are putting women's rights as well as our value on women and folks with, you know, with reproduction. We're assessing the value of a a human being with these laws and it's not fair and it's unjust to to think that we have the autonomy to put value on someone else it's wrong so and then also to what is at stake so let's say we always talk about planned parenthood so only 2% of their clinics actually perform abortions. What, talk about what the other 98%, what, what, what is the main mission of groups like Planned Parenthood? What are they trying to do as far as women's health is concerned? Yeah, they're just trying to make sure that women's health and reproductive health is taken care of from a preventative healthcare lens, whether it's cancer screenings, breast cancer screenings, um, you know, contraception and birth control, um, you know, general questions and, and things like that, um, promoting healthcare that is preventative as opposed to after the problem, you know, after you've found out that you've been bleeding because you have cancer, you know, people don't realize that, you know, I, I had to find out on a podcast the other day that if you, if you start bleeding after you have menopause, that it can actually be an indicator of cancer, not necessarily your body's last hurrah, but it's an indicator of cancer in your uterus. And you know, these things are just are education pieces that women need to know about their bodies. And that's what Planned Parenthood and most, um, you know, most healthcare organizations that perform abortions are trying to motivate and to do. Um, the OBGYN that I went to to have my abortion, it's a center for women's health. That's not the only thing she does all day. She treats um, and has patients that want to become pregnant, that want to, um, that are pregnant and want to have their children and, you know, and things like that. And what's interesting is I actually went to Planned Parenthood to have my IUD removed to get pregnant. So there's people who are going to these clinics because they want to have children. And so it's just education, preventative healthcare, and, you know, expanded healthcare for reproductive um, autonomy. So would it be a fair statement to say that if you close a clinic because they perform abortions, that you're actually closing a center that could provide healthy solutions for women in general yes absolutely okay all right well kelsey i thank you for taking the time out um um it seems like 30 minutes is a long time to talk but it's really very short when you're talking about (laughs) uh uh, comprehensive issues like this but I, i wish you continued uh luck personally and uh, on your journey, and I, and I wish you success with your nonprofit. Uh, hope that you continue to get good, good information out there to people and to be that, that shoulder to cry on that, uh, that some people need. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Yes, ma'am. All right. So we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and so we're back. So I hope that um, you got something out of that, but we're going to get into it a little more. Um, off off air, uh, Kelsey um, reminded me, well, she, she reminded me about her website, which is from thegreendesk.com, if you want to check out what her nonprofit is doing. But she also stated that she is going to be involved in what we call a 50 state challenge in which she wants to make sure that her book gets out to every state legislator and governor and U.S. Senator and congressman uh, to um, and even the the nine members of the Supreme Court. Uh, You know, hopefully that, you know, reading her story uh, which is very, very detailed. She's very good at putting you in the moment. Uh, so you, you know, um, understand how she's feeling or what she was feeling at that time. Uh, she's hoping that her book would have some kind of influence with them. And so as soon as I get the, uh, she said she was going to send me the link. So as soon as I get that, I'll put that out there for you. Um, but, uh, one of the things that I told her off the air that, you know, a lot of you that follow the podcast know that I'm a former state legislator. So naturally, uh, we dealt with the issue when I was serving and, uh, I was, for lack of a better term, I was considered a pro-life person. Uh, I was very adamant in that pro-life stance against the death penalty. And that's where I was mostly associated with. Um, and I am have not been a proponent of abortion as a form of birth control. Uh, I've made that statement. I've, But I do believe that a woman has a right to choose. Uh, since I will never be in that position, just like I had mentioned the other legislator in Connecticut, I had the same viewpoint that since I would never be in that position physically to make that decision myself, I didn't think politically it was right for me to make that decision for all of the women in the state of Mississippi. And so, uh, I was fortunate, I guess, because it was several of us that offered similar amendments, but I was very fortunate that when the abortion bill came up um, in in the legislature, legislative session, I forget what year exactly it was, but it was toward the latter part, I think it was my second term, that I offered the amendment to include exceptions because there was actually a bill out there that wanted to ban or limit abortions, period. Uh, So it didn't want to take into account whether the woman was raped or not. Didn't want to take into account whether the woman uh, became pregnant from an incestual relationship. Um, Didn't want to take into account even health reasons. They just wanted to basically say, regardless, you know, and, you know, as I was explaining and talking with Kelsey and, and, and just further conversating with her afterwards, everybody has an individual story, right? And it's tough to make public policy when you know there's, a myriad of reasons why people have to do what they do. Um, so I want, I want people to be sensitive about that, but I wanted to highlight the the situation in Connecticut because 
it highlights how we've had to deal with the issue in the African-American community. So Connecticut is considered one of the liberal states, right? Whereas you've had 22 states that have been pushing to restrict abortion rights. There's 15 states that have been pushing to expand it. And basically Connecticut's version of it was to uh, increase the number of people that could actually be licensed to perform an abortion. And, uh, and it actually has a, what we call a clawback provision. Um, the challenge, if, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of uh, the state of Mississippi in, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, uh, which, by the way, is the only abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi as of now. Um, and there were attempts to try to shut it down in the federal courts in Mississippi and the Fifth Circuit have basically shut down every law that the state legislature has brought out there uh, for the record, regardless of who, which president appointed what judge that's kind of been a unanimous trend. Um, so there's a provision in the Connecticut law that allows them to do certain things or keep the law viable. If the Supreme court does what people are predicting it to do and, and overturns Roe v. Wade. Um, but the, the, the debate that came up in Connecticut was, was fascinating because people were talking about uh, the history of the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. And uh, they were talking about the effort to sterilize uh, black people back in the day uh, to minimize their population growth. Um you know, I don't know if any of y'all from the South may have heard the term saltpeter, right? That was um, that was what they said they used to put in the water uh, at the black schools to try to keep the black boys from getting the black girls pregnant at the school. I know it's it's crazy. I'm just you know it is what it is. If you're from the South, and my generation for sure, and older, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so there's always been, you know, this talk and this effort to try to, um, minimize the black population. Um, and so I wanted to talk about the conflict a little bit because the African-American community is considered, you know, is considered a very religious community, a Christian conservative community, uh, you know, Latino communities, very heavily Catholic. Um, and then if you break the white community down into different ethnic groups, some are more faithful in their church participation and their religious fervor than others. Um, but the black community is always because our politics has come from the black church because it was a safe place until later on the civil rights movement, when they started trying to literally burn churches down. Um, it was considered a safe haven for us. It was a place of information for us where we could find out what was going on uh, in the community with people who were strategically placed to get that information to us. Uh, the leaders of the church, the pastors were pretty much considered leaders in the community as a whole. And uh, it was under that strategy that uh, the civil rights movement uh, developed people like Andrew Young and Fred Shuttleworth, let alone Martin Luther King, right? Uh, James Bevel, all those guys, all those guys were ministers. Jesse Jackson, they were all ordained ministers. Um, and so, it, which led to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So, you you so the conflict that is within the church has always been 
trying to apply what Christ wanted us to do as opposed to what is amenable or what we can do or what society dictates that we do, right? For lack of a uh, different uh, term to, to other than dictate. But, um, and so they had a, they, the New York Times covered a conference in St. Louis that was generated by Missouri's attempt to restrict or outlaw abortion. And it was very clear that the ministers from a religious perspective were against abortion. Uh, they were, they clearly feel that uh, since it is in our, for those of us who are Christian, is in our dictate that uh, we shouldn't kill anybody under God's command, then, um, you know, abortion is equating to killing a child that hasn't been born, regardless of what stage that pregnancy is in. Um, but at the same time, their role as community and social and political leader, they understand that a woman has a right to choose. And basically one pastor said that that's that woman's relationship with God that will determine whether she makes that choice or not. And, uh, but they're also concerned about the fact that, okay, so you, we want these babies to be born, but what kind of world are we bringing these babies into? Will it be a world that doesn't have discrimination? Will it be a world that doesn't have economic uh, wealth disparities? Is it going to be a world where everybody will have access to health care? Is it going to be a world where education is a stepping stone and not a barrier? Right. And so if you want us to say, we want children to be born, then we want us a society that children can also thrive in because life is not just being born. Life is the years after that. As one pastor always used to say when he gave his eulogies, the dash between the numbers, right? What is going to define that dash for these children that are born? How excellent will that life be? What would the, how, how outstanding will the quality of their life be? And so these pastors at this conference basically made the statement that although from a religious standpoint, we are uncomfortable with abortion, we will never take a public position to outlaw it based on history and based on circumstances of the black community. So that kind of shows where it is. When I first got involved in politics, the majority of black people in America were considered pro-life. They were against abortion. Now that has changed. Uh, the majority of black people that vote say there should be circumstances which allows a woman to make that choice. Um, you know, it's a smaller number of that majority that, you know, think that it should be, you know, without any, you know, with total access with no, um, medical reason. But the majority, the over, I would say overwhelming majority, but it's a significant majority that believes that a woman, if, if for some reason she's been raped, she's been abused, um, um, she's, you know, her relative impregnated her, whatever, uh, if there's a circumstance where she knows she she shouldn't have or, or does not want to bring a child based off of those kind of incidents. 
And for their own health reasons, of course, if they have the risk of dying, that uh, they should be allowed to have that. It should not be outlawed. Um, and like I said, that's a leap. That's a that's you know, and that leap kind of took place within a twenty year span. And you know, I think. You know, and so that's kind of shaping the politics. And when you when you're talking about the politics being shaped the way that it is, uh, it's not a coincidence that the most influential block in the Democratic Party is African American women, right? So, you know, watching this dynamic as the black community, there, there is a segment of the black community, though, that really believes that this is a white issue. Even though black women have a higher rate of having abortions than white women, uh, at least according to um, public health data, um, there's still this perception as a white issue and, and history would bear that out, especially at the turn of the 20th century. Um, if you've never heard me say it before, I've, I've said it in different spots, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was one of the biggest opponents of abortion. He was, I mean, he was against birth control uh, and he equated infertility to being or taking steps uh, not to have children uh, as suicide for the white race. He is, he was very, very adamant about that. Um, and especially with wealthy white women, uh, he, he almost made it seem like it was their obligation to have children of, uh, a lot of them and it's some organization and doing the research for the show i found out there's a there's actually a group called quiver full right if you're unfamiliar with archery the quiver is where you keep the arrows right and you always want to have a full stock of arrows if you're using bow and arrows so that's what they're 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 referring to when they say quiverful but that's kind of a mindset you know and then of course the catholic church is for years had been against birth control, let alone abortion. And so a lot of devout Catholic families, regardless if they're Irish, Mexican, uh, you know, Philip, whatever, right. Um, they've always been pushing, you know, uh, big families. So, you know, it just, it, it started off that way. And then you had the eugenics movement, and this is where Margaret Sanger gets in, because Margaret Sanger started Planned Parenthood primarily to provide women's health care to poor women. Um, and, of course, in going to the South, most of the poor women were black women. I mean, you had some poor white women, you still do, but, you know, and so... Margaret would go and speak anywhere. She would be at an NAACP meeting in one minute, and then she'd be at a Klan meeting the next because she was trying to push this Planned Parenthood uh, uh, initiative to uh, encourage people to use birth control. She was actually an opponent of abortion. She felt that was an extreme. Uh, but her issue was on the front end, you know, to keep women from being in a position to have to make that choice. Uh, but in, in, in pushing that agenda, she ended up being a part of the eugenics movement. And the eugenics movement was the movement basically to uh, uh, enact Darwinism or selective Darwinism where uh, the, you know, only the, the strong will survive. That's the Darwin theory. Uh, the fittest will evolve. Right. And so basically the eugenics movement was this movement to kind of help Darwin's theory along 
and try to encourage only people that were fit um, to uh, continue on, right? To proliferate, to promulgate, whatever. Um, and so the um, so Sanger, because of her involvement with eugenics, of course, at that time the mindset in America was black people were unfit as well as certain European immigrants and certain immigrants from other parts of the world. If as Theodore Roosevelt, if you weren't of the Puritan New Englander class, you know, the founders of the nation, as he would put it, then, you know, they, they didn't want people other than white folks to be the majority of the population. And because of that, um, there was actually legalized sterilization in America. And the Supreme Court sanctioned it. Yes, the Supreme Court, which is now going to say, well, we we don't want to have any abortions. At least that's what they're being predicted. Actually, in 1927, had a ruling that said it was all right for states to sterilize people. Uh, California, I think, had the biggest program where they, you know, basically, if you went to jail, you got sterilized, right? You couldn't have no more kids because they didn't want criminals to have children because they figured in the eugenics theory, if you were dumb, then your kids were going to be dumb. If you were smart, your kids were going to be smart. If you're a criminal, your kids are going to be criminals. No kind of environmental or societal impact on those decisions is they believed it was inherent. And so they were sterilizing criminals. And of course, those states in the South were sterilizing black people. Um, but the Supreme Court said that was okay, that states had the right to do that. Uh, as far as I know, that really hasn't been overturned, to be honest. Um, so it's it's interesting how we, we've gotten to this point now where we went from a society that thought it was okay to sterilize people because of a mistake they made to now saying that women don't have a choice whether to have a child or not. And for the record, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will still be legal in the United States. It will not be universal. It will not be federal. It would be state by state. So states like Connecticut you would still be able to choose to have an abortion if you want to. In a state like Texas or Mississippi, you would not be. And so that's the dilemma that's getting ready to happen. And states that have clinics that are run by Planned Parenthood, those, those Planned Parenthood centers would not be funded anymore which means that that would limit the amount of clinics that would be available or, or any clinic that provided an abortion. That would basically, they would try to shut them down on, on that basis. Um, there is a concern that people would start having back alley abortions. What they That's the term that they used in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s. Um, you know, try to do it yourself as a sense it would be illegal to do it. Or they would have to travel to the states where it was legal. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of a throwback to um, an earlier era in American history, the 20th century, if you will, um, where it would be illegal in some states and legal in others. So that's that's the ramification. If if the Supreme Court rules in 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 Dobbs' favor, 
which Dobbs is basically the state of Mississippi, then you couldn't have an abortion uh, after six weeks. And a lot of, or 15 weeks, I'm sorry, 15 weeks is the Mississippi bill. The heartbeat bills are the six week bills. A lot of people don't know they're pregnant at that point. Um, so that's that's the ramification. That if the, if the Supreme Court upholds Roe v. Wade, then the current law still ends. That the uh, that the federal government can't regulate abortion or, or fund it, but, you know, uh, a woman has the right to that abortion and has the right to privacy and her health records for that. So anyway, um, that was, the, that's the gist of where we are in this, in this discussion. I think it's important that we we understand the context of this discussion and understand where we sh- where we need to be personally um i don't i don't think that a government that wants businesses to do whatever they want to do should be regulating human beings on what they want to do. I think, you know, and it's like, you know, there's certain things that you have to do to maintain order, like stop at a stop sign. Right. Um, But when people start trying to make decisions that's based off of their own morality, we don't have a right to do that. Um, or we don't have the capacity to do that. Let me, let me put it that way. We don't have the capacity to do that. If we had the capacity to dictate morality in the United States, then racism would be over with. Um, especially with the momentum that happened with the civil rights legislation and all that stuff, racism would be outlawed, totally outlawed in the United States. Um, That would be, and we would eliminate it altogether if we had the control over the morality of every citizen, but we don't. And so a lot of these issues that come up and you see the fervor and the passion on both sides of it. It's because it's an issue that an individual has to make. And whether it's dealing with pregnancy, whether it's dealing with um, how they, who they want to love or marry, uh, whether it deals with just basically what kind of car you want to drive and, and, all these different, what, what neighborhood you want to live in. These are choices that people make. And so there's no way that a government that's truly a democracy can dictate all of that. Uh, there has to be some give and take in those discussions. And again, you also have to see the big picture. If I stop this, does it impact that? Right. And so in the zeal for trying to stop abortions, do we increase the death rate or the mortality rate of mothers having birth because they didn't get the prenatal care that they could have gotten? So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Hope that generates some discussion. And until next time.